welcome back my fellow peanuts and welcome to anyone new to the channel or to my podcast. Now this podcast covers true crime cases that may not be suitable for young listeners and there may be graphic and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. I do apologize guys, you can see in the background some Christmas presents. Um, so I do apologize, we're a little bit of a mess at the moment but these are our stealing Santa and secret Santa presents so I've got them uh, in this room. Um, but Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to everybody. Um, so I will start our podcast now. Now, today's podcast is going to be about Ronald Jean Simmons. Now, I'm not sure we can really call him a serial killer. Um, I think he would be defined as perhaps a spree killer or a mass murderer. But either way, he definitely was a killer who, who I genuinely, I can't get my head around this one given the fact that he killed his immediate family. And during a time of year that is meant to be for like love and joy and family and everything like that, it's Christmas. Um, so I decided to pick, tick, <laughs> to pick this particular topic and killer given this time of year. And also because I really love the state Arkansas. It's one of those word conundrums um, where there's a W in there, but it doesn't sound like, like it sounds like there's a w but there's not actually a w and also it's got the word kansas um but you don't say it that way um the english language is definitely a little bit strange um so according to an article that i read about ronald gene simmons he'll go down in history as one of the most prophylic mass murderers in the u.s history uh the rampage would end up ending on december 28 1987 and it would leave 14 of his family members dead, as well as two others, one of them being a co-worker and one of them just being a really unfortunate person. Um, there will be many revelations during the podcast today. It may be a little bit shorter than usual, um, just because there's um, it's a lot more of a spree rather than, so it's amassed in quite a bit. Um, but we'll see. So Ronald Jean Simmons was born on July 15th in 1940 in Chicago, Illinois, to Loretta and William Simmons. In January 1943, when he was just shy of turning three, he'd actually lose his father to a stroke. And within a year, his mother would remarry. And it would also be a gentleman by the name of William, but this one would be William D. Griffin. This William would be a civil engineer for the US Army Corps of Engineers. He would have, uh, Ronald himself would end up having three siblings, but he wasn't close to any of them. Um, the family would move from Chicago to Arkansas in 1946, and they would move to Hector, which was in the Ozark foothills. Uh, this would be some of the happiest times for Ronald. He'd ha he had a real love of the outdoors and the freedom that it would actually give him. Now, they would move again in 1950 to Little Rock, and he just didn't adjust as well to this move. There's really not much about Ronald's childhood that I could find, guys. So we're probably not going to go into quite the depth that I usually do in my podcasts of what his childhood was like and what some of those circumstances would bring. But we're certainly going to see um, a lot of different sides of him. It's probably just not going to be quite as detailed as I normally would just to give you guys a heads up. Now he really, uh, getting back to Ronald, he really didn't adjust to the move to Little Rock very well. There'd been several moves and transfers throughout 1946 and 1950, but this particular move really brought out a different side of him. He would be jealous of his siblings. He was angry. He was rude towards his parents. He was already prone to tantrums and being really bad tempered. 
but this behavior it just seemed to escalate but it would end up being a little bit too much for his parents and they would enroll him in the catholic boarding school for boys uh, for boys who are troubled and he wouldn't even last three months there they would then move him to the morris academy in Searcy. but in september 1957 he would drop out of school and he joined the u.s navy now through joining the navy he'd meet a USA, uh, uso sorry volunteer by the name of rebecca becky Yulabari. and almost three years later after meeting her they would marry and from some of the sources that i've read Becky would really like Ronald's stepfather. In fact, she would like him straight away and she would stay in touch with him for the rest of her life. So she really quickly bonded with William and really just genuinely loved him. Uh, she was also incredibly close with her sister Violet. Uh, she preferred to be called Vi, but Becky was really um, enamoured with her husband and was known to have really low self-esteem uh, and at the start of their marriage Ronald would be verbally abusive though this would get continually worse over time but he would often yell at her for no reason and rather than fight back she would make it her personal goal to be a better wife. Now we've discussed this before on some of my other podcast but this is really telling of the time in which this marriage occurred it was a really the situation would have been very much Becky thinking that Ronald was in charge and this is the way this is the norm and especially someone with so little self-esteem I imagine it would have been really difficult for her to stand up for herself and her natural reaction would be that this is my fault and I need to be better, I need to do this and I need to do that. So I think that that's where that comes from. Um, personally, um, I would never stand for something like that, but I can understand during these times, it was really difficult for a woman to stand up for herself and really fight back as such. Ronald would leave the Navy in 1963 and he would try his hand at a career in banking wouldn't even last more than four months. But approximately two years after he left the Navy, he would end up returning to the military or to the armed forces. Uh, this time he'd actually be in the Air Force. Now he appreciated the order and the discipline required that is required to be in the military. And his career would really, really prosper in the Air Force. It would give him more knowledge. He felt like he was smarter than most people and it really gave him the respect and the appreciation that he thought he deserved. Once he was in the Air Force, he would actually be transferred to the Office of Special Investigations. This is otherwise known as OSI. They would be, uh, the family or Becky and him would end up m moving and being stationed in Vietnam. Now, being in this specific area of this part of the air force it would really appeal to his secretive nature which he would yet to really show anyone just yet but he would use the tools that he's learned here in this particular area to be really devious and secretive um but you'll definitely find a little bit more out um in the podcast a little bit later about his secretive nature now during ronald's time in osi he would end up getting some promotions commendations and special privileges just because of his dedication and his commitment to his job he was really good at this job he'd even be awarded a bronze star 
Um, after Vietnam, he would be stationed in San Francisco. That hippie lifestyle and flower power sort of environment would really annoy him. So when he was requested to go to London in 1973, he was thrilled to get away. But unfortunately for Becky, this was around the time that it, he would begin to physically abuse her. Uh, before I do continue, I do want to add that over about an 18-year period, uh, Ronald and Becky would have seven children. We will be talking more about them over the course of the podcast, um, but I just thought, just give you guys a heads up, you're actually going to start hearing a little bit more about these kids. Now, it should be known that Ronald was a really avid reader and he'd love to read on a number of topics. But once he had read up on a topic, no one was allowed to contradict or argue with him once he'd like really gained a knowledge of it. If they did, it would just really stir him up and it would cause people to fight with him, which I genuinely think he secretly enjoyed, right? Because it gave him an opportunity to ridicule and just be downright rude, right? But he would ridicule and mock his wife the most and especially in public. It was really to show her that he was in charge and he was in charge and the boss. Now, he loved the feel of control and he loved to show how much of it he had over his wife and children in many different forms. But just one of the many ways in which he would do this, one of them happened to be through finances. Now, Becky would be begging for money to just for the basics around the house, yet he would never ever have a problem buying himself a little bit of an expensive gift gift, sorry. Another way that he would exert his control would be through the mail. He'd open all the mail. He wouldn't care if it was addressed to to his kids, to his wife. He would never let them. Now, the family would also never have a telephone. And I think the reason for this is because if they had the ability to talk to the outside world, they might be able to tell someone what was really going on. Now, he would be assigned to the Space and Missile Systems Organization in a town called Cloudcroft, New Mexico. This is where he would buy a house that he could never really afford. But what he truly longed for was a home like the one he had when he was a child in Hector in Arkansas. And he would retire after almost 20 years in the armed forces with the rank of Master Sergeant. Now, the family would stay in New Mexico and Ronald would work as a civil service engineer at the Air Force's Computer Services Division. So I'm so sorry. I'm just going to take a little bit of a drink at the moment. I've just spoken a lot, I feel like, for the last 10 minutes or so. So I'm just going to take a quick sip. That's a lot of information for us to actually engage. So I do apologize if you weren't able to pick up. Um, on everything, I'll talk a little bit slower. Uh, as I mentioned before, over the course of the marriage, uh, Becky would give birth to seven children. What I didn't mention, though, was that the birth of her last child, Rebecca Lynn, it had severe complications. Her doctor would end up advising her that she shouldn't and couldn't have any more children. Now, Ronald would take this as a personal insult and he'd be mad at Becky for not being able to have more children. He saw this as an extension of uh, the children as an extension of himself and uh, the virility of his, you know, uh, if I have more kids, it makes me more manly and all that kind of stuff. Um, so after all the bluster and the disappointment that he would inevitably feel, he would let, and I use that word 
really, I'm, I, I hate that I'm having to use that word and I'm really appalled at myself, but he would let her have her types, um, have her tubes tied. He was about to move on in the po worst possible way. And the reasons he would relent do come to light and it would prove to be so much more perverse than you could ever imagine. He wouldn't be upset for too long as he'd already found in his mind a substitute and this will disgust all of you. He never hid the fact that his eldest daughter, 16-year-old Sheila, was his favourite child. Now she'd end up becoming an obsession for him and he would love her more than his own wife. He had little nicknames for her such as Little Princess and Ladybug and during Christmas time and birthdays, she would always receive the best presents. He also had taken countless photos of her. In the summer of 1980, uh, Sheila and her father would go on a road trip to California. This would prove to be the trip from hell for Sheila. Her father would cross a line that no father should ever cross. He would rape his own child. He would rape his own daughter. And she was already quite shy and withdrawn and she definitely knew what her father was doing was wrong but she really struggled to say no as she was really known to be obedient and to not really step a foot out of line she was she was a lot like her mum. she really did she did toe that line and she didn't want to upset him so she was very compliant and when she found out she was pregnant she was beyond ashamed and she even tried to hide it not only from her family, but from herself as well. And I think she was in real denial as it was really disgusting what, what her father was already doing, but to create a child out of that incest was beyond horrendous. And that's not only for Sheila, but the child that she was expecting. Uh, so on the day of Sheila's senior prom, uh, a night that should have been really one of the best of her life, uh, Ronald would tell his two eldest sons, Ronald Jean Jr. and William, preferring to be called Billy, and also his wife, that Sheila was pregnant with his baby. Now, the boys, as you can only imagine, were disgusted beyond belief, and while Becky was just dumbfounded. Now, just imagine your father coming to you on a night where you're expecting to see your sister all dressed up and she's all really happy, she's going out to her first formal dance and all that kind of stuff. And just imagine that you've just been told that your sister is pregnant by, by your father. I can't even imagine what that must be like for anybody. But I just, yeah, I, I just, I don't know what to say to that. Like, I just, I'm really disgusted. But he was excited, he was ecstatic, and given the delicate situation and the possible chance of arrest, he ordered everyone to keep quiet and not to tell anybody. But his eldest son, Sheen Jr., or little Jean as he preferred to be called, would go against this and he would end up telling a social worker. Now this particular social worker would investigate the allegations and discuss the situation with the DA. Now, in August 1981, he would be Ronald would be charged with three counts of incest after Sheila would testify in front of a grand jury that he'd impregnated her. But the charges would be dropped in 1982 after the police had failed to arrest him after the family had fled the area. So not only did she have the bravery to admit what her father had done and her brothers supported that decision, 
for it to be taken away from her it's just it's just heartbreaking for her now the family would leave in the middle of the night in order for ronald to evade that pesky warrant for raping his daughter and getting her pregnant they would head back to arkansas and they would leave uh, they would live in ward in lonock county now he had a plan to move them back to hector as he still really idolized that particular area but his family would be further isolated and they were not even allowed to answer the door when until he was home or if he was home there was no chance they were allowed to answer that door so he's still maintaining and exerting that control he would end up finding a job as a file clerk for the Veterans Affairs Medical Centre in Little Rock, but then he'd end up working uh, in the recruiting office for Veteran Affairs. He was definitely having financial difficulties though. He still owed money on that mortgaged home in New Mexico, and he was struggling to support Becky and the six children that still lived at home. Now, one child in particular would be Sylvia Gale, and she was the result of that incestuous relationship with his daughter and look let's be clear i'm actually going to call it molesting his child rather than a relationship because that implies that she had some consent involved in that she absolutely didn't um so he would continue sexually abusing sheila even with that warrant in new mexico still active at this stage now she would sheila would fall pregnant again in 1983 but this time he didn't want the same ramifications as he had previously, so he opted for abortion. Even though, now, he opted for abortion with this one, but he was quite vocal in how he felt about abortion with other women. Now, it only suited him because of the fact that he knew he could be arrested. So that's the only reason this guy opted for an, an abortion in this circumstance. So I find it a massive contradiction, but not unheard of, right? So Sheila would meet a fellow student by the name of Dennis McNulty uh, when she was attending the Drafton School for Business. Uh, this would start Ronald definitely on a downward spiral as he'd start to lose that control over Sheila and parts of his family as a result. Now they would begin dating and not long afterwards, Sheila would end up telling Dennis what her uh, father had been doing to her. And this would definitely give her a sense of freedom and that she could finally be free of him. Now around 1983, the family would move once again and this would be the final time that they would move. It would be to a place just outside of Dover and it was about 12 miles from his childhood home, which he dearly loved. Now, the home would consist of two mobile homes surrounded by a fence on 13 acres of land. Neither of the mobile homes, they, had, they didn't have any indoor plumbing, heating, air conditioning, or a telephone, which is no big surprise. Um, they had outhouses because they had no indoor plumbing, but their new home would be called Mockingbird Hill, and the driveway would be called Little Princess Lane. No big surprise there, it was named after Sheila. But the remote location, it certainly helped to hide any illegal activity that was going on or that he was planning on doing. It sort of gave that remoteness that you, I guess, require when you are molesting your child. But with Sheila's new relationship with Dennis blossoming, 
she had a lot more confidence and she was not as compliant as she once had been. But it did help her knowing that Dennis had actually threatened her father with physical harm if he ever touched Sheila again. And she would make plans to marry Dennis and this would further infuriate him. And she just didn't care though. She had this level of confidence that, you know, it inspired her. She was finally out of his clutches and she would be married in 1984. Now she would move away with her child, Sylvia, and her new husband, Dennis, uh, to his hometown of Camden. Now Dennis would adopt Sylvia and he would treat her as his own to save her from her real father. And Ronald's undying love for Sheila would really quickly turn to hate and he would really lash out at her and he'd tell her that he would see her in hell. With some of his children married and with their own families now, his control over them was really fading. And with Sheila uh, gone, he decided to set his sights on his next eldest daughter, Loretta. Now she proved really hard to comply. She was a lot smarter. She was far more independent than her sister. She had friends at school. So she already had like a um, a pull, right, of she had, had that ability to lean on people. And she would be a little bit more openly sarcastic and hostile towards her father. Now all of this lack of control would mean that he'd need to exert it where he could. So he wouldn't let them do anything, wouldn't let them go anywhere by themselves. He wouldn't even let them walk to the bus station. Um, he would need to drop them there and pick them up. Now, if it wasn't him doing it, it was his wife. So he needed to really like grasp that. But he, Becky was even proving to be more resourceful. Now, since Ronald would read her mail, she ended up conspiring with her eldest son, Jean, uh, Jean Jr., to get her a secret post office box where they could communicate and discuss plans on her leaving Ronald finally. She would also reach out to her sister Vi and tell her the atrocities that were going on in her life. You know, I don't think she really had anyone that she could actually speak to about this kind of stuff. And I imagine that would have been quite complicated for her because she's watching her child be molested and she's not able to do anything about it because she's beaten, right? There was nothing she could have done. And, but she did begin sleeping in the children's rooms and Ronald would lock his door and stay there brooding over the loss of Sheila and his loss of control over his family. I suspect slightly, and, um, and this is more to do with the fact of me reading up on uh, personality disorders and just, just informing myself in general, it does seem like there's a possibility that he had OCD uh, just over the order the discipline that he had during his time in the armed forces but the level of control that he's requiring at home but i also think there is a little bit possibly of narcissistic personality disorder or something along those lines because he's definitely putting sheila up on that pedestal um which is very well known if you do have narcissistic personality disorder that one child is like the gifted child and you know no one can do any wrong so i don't know if that is necessarily true or again me just making assumptions i just think that it does seem like he does have some type of disorder um 
And with his life spiraling and he's struggling to make ends meet, he had two really low paying, tedious jobs. One of them would be at the Minimart in Russellville and the other would be in the same town, but this one would be at the Woodline Motor Freight Company. And he certainly had no authority in his jobs, right, as a clerk. And for a misogynistic pig like him, a female supervisor would have been the worst of the worst. And it ha- But the best part about his job at the Woodline Motor Freight is he did actually have a female supervisor and he would have to listen. He'd have to concede to a woman and he felt humiliated and he would be written up for not performing his tasks, not completing them, and he just found it really repulsive. Like he was just really struggling with this and he would try and gain sympathy from one of his fellow employees and gain some of that control back. Um, by attempting to build a relationship with a 24-year-old co-worker by the name of Kathy Kendrick. Now, he would attempt to woo her with flowers and his charm, but all this really did for her was make her incredibly uncomfortable and she just really didn't appreciate the attention. And she'd report him to that female supervisor. Now, it would lead to him being reprimanded again and he would quit his job at the Woodline Uh, motor freight as a result just because of the fact that he got told off which just like it just appalls me right like that's just ridiculous but while he was at home he brewed in more about it he would think about Sheila he'd think about his children no longer respecting him or his authority he'd you know resent the fact that his wife was finally gaining some independence um he drank way more than he usually did and his own daughter Loretta would even say to her classmates that her dad was a drunken bum. So he was once a man who really took pride in how he looked but he really let himself go. He started to bald more, he was unshaven and he put on a lot of weight due to his increased drinking but just in general he looked really unkempt. So I imagine all of this spiraling is just making it a thousand times worse. His appearance isn't good. His job, he's not happy in his job. He's not making good money. And despite his attempts to make Mockingbird Hill, more like using his children for free labor, he was unable to make it look anything like other than a dump. So he's really, his whole life is falling apart, right? Like it's just insane. Now, Becky would continue to gain that confidence and that independence. She'd stayed all those years already because of those kids. And being that she thought she couldn't support herself or the kids without him, that really further stopped her from leaving him for years. But with three of the eldest kids leaving the homestead and her sister Vi, they were really egging her on to leave him. And they would tell her, no, you could get some of his military benefits as well as child support she really got the courage to leave him and she even got brave enough to threaten him with the police and she was putting money away where she could but there's always safety in numbers and knowing that her children Jean Jr, Billy and Sheila and Sheila were coming home for Christmas in 1987 she was going to use that opportunity to leave him. Now no one really knows what actually triggered Ronald to kill his family. There are three theories One is that he had learned that his wife was planning on divorcing him and he wanted revenge on his family for attempting uh, to help her and to encourage her to do this and also a certain amount of anger at his wife. Uh, The other theory is that there was a depression and an anger over Sheila marrying Dennis and abandoning him. 
The other is that Kathy rejecting him caused the demise. Unfortunately, this would actually prove to be a fatal mistake to, to her, but we'll get to that soon. I think it was probably a combination, right? All three of those things, it was the house falling apart. It was that his life was not where, where he'd expected it to be. I think it was just genuinely just a combination of everything. I don't think you can ever just blame it on one thing, right? Like it's, it's always a combination of things. Now, months or weeks, it's not really been defined off, uh, from what I've read before the next part of my podcast. The children were told to dig holes for another outhouse. This would end up being graves, but I have to wonder if he had a plan to kill them for months or were the holes just an easy access for him to dispose of the bodies? Now, Ronald would quit his job at the minima on Friday, the 18th of December. His son, Jean Jr. and his daughter, Barbara, who was just three years old, had come for a visit and were at the house the morning of 22nd of December. That particular morning, Ronald would see his children, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne and Rebecca Lynn off to school and he would go to Walmart and purchase a 22 caliber revolver even though he had three guns at home. Now once he would return home he would begin the slaughter of his family. The exact order of um, how they died is, isn't to be determined just because he actually didn't end up speaking too much about the deaths of his family. Uh, during his confessions he really openly avoided talking about the, the killing of his family members. So the order in which I go may not be correct, um, but I just want to give you an, an overview of how this happened. He would beat and shoot his wife, uh, Becky and Jean Jr. He'd fight back. That was definitely um, discovered in his defensive wounds. Um, and when his father would beat him with a crowbar, he would, he would fight back, but it would be proved to be really futile as he'd end up being shot four times and beaten. Shortly after killing his wife and son, uh, he would do the absolute unthinkable and he would strangle his three-year-old granddaughter, Barbara. Now, after this killing spree, he would dispose of their bodies in those holes that he'd made the children dig. And this is probably the most disgusting and appalling things that I've read. He'd open up a beer and he'd admire his Christmas lights that he had in his house. I'm not sure how you can do that. Um, I'm not, again, this is just from articles that I've read, so I'm not even sure if that actually happened, but it, it, it's in multiple of them. Now, once his four other children returned home from school, he would actually lie to them and he'd tell them he had a present for each of them individually. Apparently, it began with Loretta. Uh, she's 17 and he would take her out the back and, as you can guess, there was no gift. Instead, he would hold her head underwater in a rain barrel and one by one, each of those children would endure a drowning in that disgusting barrel. He would also place their bodies in those holes and adding further insult to injury, he would douse their bodies in kerosene so that it would mask the smell and keep away animals. Just a really disgusting human being, right? 
he would end up spending the next couple of days at home and he was awaiting the arrival of his other children and family members who were set to celebrate a belated Christmas on the 26th of December. So when his son Billy, his wife Renata and their son Trey, who was just 20 months old, I might add. Now upon their arrival, they would be shot, the adults would be shot. He would then strangle his grandchild again and he would place the adults at the dining room table and he'd cover them with their own coats. Trey would be placed in the boot of a car at, in a car at the property. Now, next to arrive would be his favourite child who turned into his worst nightmare, Sheila, her husband, Dennis, their 20-month-old son, Michael, and Sylvia, who the one who just happened to be his daughter and his granddaughter. The adults again were shot and they were placed inside the house as well as Sylvia, but Sylvia had actually been strangled and Michael had also been strangled as well. Now he received a similar treatment as Trey. He would be placed in another car, but in the boot again. He would spend apparently the next couple of days drinking beer at home and watching TV with his dead family around him. So far, he had killed 14 people, all of which were his children, their spouses, his wife, and his grandchildren. Just in the space of two days, 14 people were murdered. And on the morning of December 28th, he'd go to the Walmart in Russellville and he'd purchase another gun. This day would unfold like a scary movie. In Russellville, the sheriff's office, they'd be soon getting phone calls about multiple shootings at different locations. He'd be carrying out his revenge on people who he had perceived had done him wrong. I'm guessing he sat there and he stewed over this, right, while he's sitting in there in his home with his dead family. Now, you'll see on the screen right now the locations of where he went that day. The marker of where the Minimart is, I've assumed that's the Minimart because it's no longer called what it was called in 1987. So it could be wrong. It could be a different location. But he would first kill Kathy Kendrick, the young woman who didn't appreciate his attention at the Woodline Motor Freight. She had actually changed jobs and she was now a receptionist at a law firm. He would shoot her and she would die almost instantly. He would then move on to the Taylor Oil Company where his boss at the Minimart was, Rusty Taylor. Now his particular issue with Rusty was about his low pay. Rusty would actually survive. However, a gentleman by the name of J.D. Shaffin was killed just because he was there and happened to walk into the building. Ronald would then go to the Minimart where he had previously worked. He'd shoot the manager, David, in the head, but not before David got one off and threw a chair at his head and it hit him. Um, a cashier would also be shot, Roberta, and a customer would throw things at Ronald until he left. Now, even though Roberta was bleeding profusely, she would end up calling the police and identify him as the shooter, Ronald in particular. Ronald and Roberta, sorry, Roberta and David were able to survive the injuries. Ronald would make one more stop before turning himself into the police. He would go to the Woodline Motor Freight. He'd shoot that female supervisor. Her name happens to be Joyce Bartz. She would be shot in the chest and head. And even though she would survive, she would never fully recover. But after shooting Joyce, he would ask one of the employees at 
the motor freight company to call the police where he would surrender himself. 16 people would be dead as a result of this killing spree and multiple people would be severely injured. It's been reported that he actually sat there with that employee and talked to her during while he waited for that police. I can't imagine the amount of fear that you would have talking to a man knowing that they've just shot one of your colleagues. After his arrest, uh, Simmons, so in particular, sorry, Ronald, uh, underwent a psychiatric evaluation where he was actually, <laughs> where he was found fit to stand trial. And he, he's, he went first on trial for the murders of Kathy Kendrick and J.D. Schaffern, and he was found guilty on May 12, 1988, and was sentenced to death. Now, he made an additional statement under, under oath supporting his sentence. I, Ronald Jean Simmons, Sr., want it to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out exponentially. He would then go on trial for the murders of his 14 family members and was found guilty on February 10th, 1989. Again, he's being sentenced to death, this time by lethal injection. And as to motive, uh, a family friend told investigators uh, that Becky was going to, you know, be leaving him. She'd been saving up money for the divorce and that's when the killings happened. But guys, I really, I don't think we can put it down to one thing. I think it was a, a, it was a combination. Now, during the trial, he would have to be removed from the courtroom for punching a prosecutor, John Bynum, I think that's how you pronounce it, and trying to grab a deputy's gun after John had introduced a letter between himself and his daughter, Sheila, in which he had revealed how angry he was, um, that she had revealed that he's the father of her child, he would see her in hell. Um, so a letter that he'd written was, you know, read out and he got so angry over it. But again, he refused to appeal his death sentence, stating to those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and un unusual punishment. The trial court conducted a hearing um, concerning uh, his competence to waive those further so those appeals, but it concluded it did conclude that his decision was knowing and knowing and intelligent. So what that basically says is that you know he he was competent. He wanted this death sentence. He wanted it, and he didn't want any appeals. Um, he ended up becoming the subject of the United States Supreme Court, Whitmore versus Arkansas, when another death row inmate. Jonas Whitmore attempted unsuccessfully to force an appeal of Simmons' court case, like of his case. While on death row, he would have to be separated from other prisoners as his life was threatened constantly. This was because he had genuinely refused to appeal his death sentence and other prisoners believed that Simmons was damaging their chances of beating their own chances. Yes. Now, on May 31, 1990, Arkansas Governor and later President Bill Clinton signed Ronald's execution warrant. And on June 25th, he died by the method he'd chosen, a lethal injection. Now, none of his surviving relatives would even claim the body. And he's buried in a potter's field in Lincoln County, 
Arkansas. Couldn't think of anything nicer. I mean, as if you're going to want to claim this. But to end this podcast, I'm going to read a letter that was written by Becky Simmons to her son, Billy, her daughter-in-law, and Trey just before her death. She seems to have been resolved that she was going to leave. And I think we need to hear her voice because I think she took an incredibly brave move knowing that she was going to leave. Dear Bill, Renata and Trey, Loretta may be staying in town Friday night, so I'll have her mail this. I've been thinking of all of you. I've I've been thinking of all of you, said Bill, and I know you are. um, I've been thinking of all, and Bill, you said, and I, of what you said, Bill, and I know you are right. I don't want to live the rest of my life with Dad. I'm still trying to figure out how to start. And what if I couldn't find a job for some time? You have to remember, I've never had a job since I've been married or before that. I now have to start somewhere. It would all be so much easier if it was just me. But I have three kids, apparently not counting 17-year-old Loretta, also by then. So if you want to go and so if you want to do any checking by telephone, go ahead and check and we can talk about it when you come. I've decided if I borrow from mum that I would still have to send her to you. I'm still all very confused and like I said, I do know and I don't want to stay with dad and don't want, don't want him getting more than he deserves. Yet sometimes I feel God is telling me to be more patient. Right now I'll just say, I'll just say, do some more checking and then it will help make my decision. I would like for Loretta to move with you when she turns 18. She wants to go to college and she can get a job too. I don't think San Antonio is the place for her. Uh, L. Jean, little Jean, apparently referring to her son, Jean Jr. And Wilma are back together and they want to try, try it out and try to come get Barbara. I'm sure enjoying Barbara. She is a sweet and lovable, polite little girl. She's a good girl and we all love her and enjoy her so much. She always has us laughing. I'm so proud of Trey. The last time you came, Dad wanted to know how come you didn't say stay long enough for him to see him too. Now that little Jean and Wilma are back together, I wish they could move from San Antonio. Barbara needs both of her parents. They've both been through so much and I hope it works out. I love them both. Wilma wrote me a letter telling me she loves little Jean very much and she must. She went back to him and I'm sure she has been hurt deeply. I want to see all of my children happy. I remembered a lot about what you've said, Bill. I'm a prisoner here and so are the kids. I know when I get out, I might need help. Dad has me here like some type of prisoner and the freedom might be hard for me to get, yet I know it would be great having my children visit me at any time. Having a telephone, going shopping if I want, going to church if I want to. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. I don't want to be, I don't want to put any burden on my children. I think it's best while or before I get out, before I'm too old. I want out, but it's the beginning. Once I get a job and a place, then I can handle it with the mental support of my children. 
I know I can do it. It was hard to talk in front of little Jean. He's been having it so hard and his problems were deeply on my mind. I felt sorry for him. I was so afraid he might go back and do something. You are lucky, Bill. You have a very good wife. She led you the right way and that way is towards God. She's very pretty too. I've always thanked God for sending you a good wife. I'm thankful for Dennis too. Give my darling Trey a lot of hugs and kisses for me. I love you all very much. Barbara gets bored if I take too long to write. So I hope I made sense in this letter. Hope Loretta can mail this Friday or Saturday on her way home. Love you very much, Mum. P.S. You look, you all look so nice when you came. Loretta had a great time with Renata. She talked a lot about it. It seems like she had really resolved that and she was still making up her mind whether to leave because there were quite a few concerns for her. But I think it's pretty amazing for me to see that she did that for herself, right? Like she did that. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, thank you all for joining my podcast today. Um, if you like my podcast, please hit that follow button or hit the bell if you want to be notified for any notifications. And I hope you have all have a fabulous Christmas. I hope you have a wonderful holiday break. Um, you can see all my Christmas stuff here. Um, I, I vomit Christmas. Um, I love to say that, by the way. Um, I hope you all have a fabulous time and I shall see you again in two weeks. Bye, guys. <laughs>